Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We have the privilege, as always, of coming to God's Word this morning. And this morning, I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians. As many of you will recognize, we finished up 1 Thessalonians two weeks ago, and we continue on now with this second letter from Paul to Thessalonica. And it's, it's a privilege to move from one letter to the next, uh, to the same church, because we already know much of the background and the themes of what Paul is going to be talking about. It's kind of like moving to the second book or the second movie uh, in a series. As you move to the sequel, you already know the characters and you already know the themes, and so you can enter further into the content. But as just a brief reminder to refresh our memories, it's Paul, Silas, or Silvanus as he's called here, and Timothy writing to this church of Thessalonica because they were chased out of Thessalonica just days after first sharing the gospel there. And Paul was anxious for the church, wondering whether they had withstood the persecution that had come to them. And in 1 Thessalonians, we saw Paul's joy over the report that he had received, that the Thessalonian church was doing well, even as he sought to answer some questions. But it appears that not long after Paul's first letter, probably within a matter of months, Paul received a letter back from the Thessalonians. Or, or maybe it wasn't a letter, maybe it was another believer who had visited the church and come and, and given a report to Paul. And the second update had, had given him further information, and so Paul responds with, with a second letter. Because the update described ongoing persecution and affliction that the church was facing. And it described as well the ongoing steadfastness of the Thessalonian church, but it also raised some concerns, some concerns and challenges that had developed within the church. And so that's what Paul is addressing in his second letter here. As we begin, I just want to make a comment about chapter 1. Chapter 1 is a tightly interwoven argument from Paul, and really the whole chapter belongs together. But I just couldn't figure out how to do it justice and preach for less than an hour. So you'll all be glad to know that I'm not going to preach for an hour. And I'm going to look at the first two points in Paul's argument this week. And we'll look further at judgment and glory next week. So read with me, if you would, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." 
God, we thank you for your word. These are your words written to your people. And we pray that your spirit would strengthen us and encourage us and draw us to you this morning for your sake. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 1972, preschoolers in the Bing Nursery School in California had an opportunity to participate in what is now known famously as the marshmallow experiment. Some of you may have heard of this as a psychological study on self-control conducted by Walter Mischel of Stanford University. And the experiment went like this. The four and five-year-olds were given a marshmallow or a pretzel, whichever they preferred. I don't know what four-year-old chooses a pretzel over a marshmallow, but they had their choice. And they were given this instruction. You have 15 minutes to sit here with your marshmallow or your pretzel. If you eat it in those 15 minutes, that's it. But if you wait for 15 minutes and don't eat your marshmallow, we'll give you a second marshmallow. And so we test delayed gratification and self-control. And the results of the study were interesting, but not nearly as interesting as the follow-up studies that were done in 1988, 1990, and 2011. In these studies, they took the results and looked at four-year-olds and their level of self-control to see how their self-control habits impacted their developing life. Did they show better test scores? Did they have better success in life? fascinating follow-up study. And I'm going to leave you some interesting Sunday afternoon reading to look up those results uh, and see how people fared. But the point for us this morning is that 2 Thessalonians gives us a similar benefit because most letters in the New Testament give us insight into a particular situation at a particular time in a particular church. But with 2 Thessalonians, we get to track the progress of the church in Thessalonica between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. We're going to see how Paul's prayers have been answered, what concerns have developed. It's a unique benefit to see Paul write to the same church with a follow-up letter and see how that church is growing. And this morning, we're going to see both answered prayer and developing concerns. But this morning, I think our key point is this. Paul thanks God for the work he is doing in the lives of the Thessalonians. For God's work in them is increasing their faith and love and also marking them as worthy of the kingdom of God. And we'll see both of those this morning. But before we dig into the meat of this passage, I want to just spend one minute on the greeting in verses 1 and 2. Paul's greeting here sounds like his greeting to most of his letters, to most of his churches. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. But it's important for us to recognize that this is not just Paul's opportunity to say hi. These words don't sound familiar because they're the standard greeting that Paul decides to use. No, Paul begins this way because he's reminding the Thessalonians of their identity in Christ, of who they are. In fact, we could say that all the glory of our hope in Christ is packed into the words of this greeting. If we have turned from sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we stand united to Jesus, in Jesus and in fellowship with God the Father through the Holy Spirit. And these words are so important. They get at part of the uniqueness of Christianity. Because if you look at religions across the world, you'll see plenty of religions where you need to obey God. You'll see some religions, particularly in the East, where your spirit returns and is subsumed into God. 
But only in Christianity are we invited into a personal fellowship with the God of the universe. And here in these words also is the hope that grounds everything Paul will say in his letter. We are all born into sin, following the patterns and attractions and ideas of this world and deserving God's judgment. But everyone who hears the gospel is offered this hope. By faith in Christ, we can be rescued, redeemed, and brought into fellowship with Jesus Christ, into service of this Lord Jesus. And it is in that fellowship with Him that we are remade, that we are filled with and overflowed with the life of God's own Spirit that gives us eternal hope with Him. And so all of our hope is packed into the words of this greeting as Paul uses these two verses to remind the Thessalonians of who they are in God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. But having established the Thessalonians' identity, Paul then goes on in verses 3 and 4 to thank God for his work in the Thessalonians and for his answered prayers. Now most of us, I'm, I'm guessing, pray with some regularity. But I wonder how much of a, many of us take the time to write down our prayers. Do we write out our prayer requests? And if we do that, I wonder how many of us take the time to write down God's answers to those prayers. My family growing up had a tradition where on January 1st, we would write out prayer requests for the coming year. And the goal was to tuck those in the back of our Bible so that on December 31st, we could pull those out and see how God had been faithful to answer those prayers over the course of the year. It's a wonderful exercise, and I've gotten out of the habit of it a bit now. But Paul Miller, one, one author and Christian teacher, takes us a step further. When he has a prayer request, he writes that prayer request down on a three-by-five card and prays for it until he sees God's answer. And then he writes God's answer to the prayer on that three-by-five card and files it chronologically in a file box. And what Paul Miller has done is created a written record of God's faithfulness throughout the course of his life. I think we have something of this written record here in verses 3 and 4. And to understand that, we need to remember what Paul was praying for back in 1 Thessalonians. And just to jog our memory, I want to remind you in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 3 what Paul prayed for. He prayed for this, Now may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Elsewhere throughout 1 Thessalonians, Paul expressed his deep desire that the church would not be moved by affliction and that their love would increase more and more and that God would sanctify him completely. Those were Paul's prayers in 1 Thessalonians. So look at verses 3 and 4 in 2 Thessalonians 1. What do we see? As Paul looks back to his latest report, he finds that the church has been growing abundantly in their faith. The love of every one of them has been increasing for one another. They have endured steadfast in the midst of their afflictions. This is what Paul had prayed for, and Paul has granted his requests. And so it's no wonder that Paul's response is, we ought to give thanks to God for his work in you. And I think we have to pause and say, what an encouragement to us to pray for one another, not just for prayer requests in general, but to pray for one another in our spiritual growth. Someone once told me that the greatest blessing 
or at least one of the greatest blessings of being born into a Christian family was that it guaranteed that you would be prayed for by parents and grandparents from the day of your birth. I want to encourage us all to be praying for our children, yes, our grandchildren, yes, but also for one another, for our spiritual growth by the power of God's Spirit at work in us. But these verses also give us an example of what a healthy church should look like. It gives us a a picture of the community of God's people growing in faith, increasing in love, and standing steadfast in faith. And the words Paul uses here are important. When Paul describes their faith growing abundantly, he uses a verb that refers to abundant, lush, organic growth like that of a tree. The word could literally be translated to increase beyond measure and to grow exceedingly. Maybe we picture trees in a rainforest or or trees in in a particularly wet area. I'm told that a willow tree in wet areas can grow as much as eight feet in one year. It's growth that is organic and lush in abundance that it is visible and marked. That's the kind of growth Paul's talking about here. Maybe maybe you think of another picture very similar from Psalm 1. Psalm 1-3, where a righteous man who delights in God's law is referred to as a tree planted by streams of water whose leaves do not wither, and in all he does he prospers. This is the picture and I hope the desire of every believer that we would grow abundantly in faith as we soak up the nutrients of God's word and of prayer. Then Paul describes their love for one another that's increasing. And this verb for increase, as one commentator puts it, is one that describes a rising flood that more and more covers everything in the vicinity. Maybe you think of the great Conestoga River after a rainstorm. And you know how it can rise over its banks and cover all of the area nearby. That's what Paul is describing, the picture he's giving us of the Thessalonians' love increasing for one another so that it covers everyone in the vicinity. And then there's steadfastness, a word that refers to unmoved strength regardless of what beats against us. If you were looking out your window at 5 o'clock this past Wednesday, and if you live anywhere in the vicinity of this church, you probably experienced the same striking summer thunderstorm that I did. I was actually in the parking lot at Universal Athletic Club up the road, and I was in my car, and the wind was actually rocking my car back and forth, but I was staring at a tree being hit with the wind and the rain. And yes, the leaves and branches were blowing, but that trunk wasn't moving an inch. And that's the picture that Paul gives us of steadfastness. Legitimately facing harm, affliction, and difficulty, yes, but steadfast and rooted in faith in Christ through it all. That's the picture of the healthy church here. And we shouldn't miss how significant this description is. Because I think any of us will recognize that left to ourselves, our vices and our weaknesses tend to become more pronounced as we go through life. As we get older, our stubbornness or our anxieties, our our laziness or our idolatries, they tend to increase and become more habitual when left to ourself. And yet Paul is praying for the opposite here. God's word is giving us a picture of the opposite, a pattern of life where sin decreases and our virtues, the fruits of the Spirit instead, grow. How is this possible? It's possible only because our hearts have been replaced. We have a new source of God-breathed life in us 
that increases God's character in us rather than our sins. But we all know this is a practical challenge day by day, so maybe we could ask this question, what practically can give us this kind of growing steadfast faith and love? And God's Word gives us a couple answers. First, God's Word tells us that a belief in God's power and character leads to growing faith in steadfastness. God's Word tells us this in Romans chapter 4. If you remember Romans chapter 4, Paul is discussing Abraham. Abraham faced some seemingly insurmountable difficulties in life. God had promised him a baby, and yet he's 100 years old, and his wife is nearly as old and has been barren. Seems like a difficult situation to believe God's promise. But here's what Romans 4 says. Listen to what it says. It says, Abraham never wavered, but grew strong in his faith. How did Abraham grow strong in his faith? Here's what Romans 4 says. Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. See, we grow in faith. We remain steadfast by remembering and trusting the certainty of God's character and his promises that guarantee his presence today and his return in days to come and his secure eternal salvation that will be ours in him no matter what's happening from day to day in our lives right now. Well, that's one thing Scripture tells us. Scripture gives us another help, though. Scripture tells us that a firm belief that Christ is better than anything in this world will also spur our faith and give us steadfastness in Him. Maybe you remember Paul when he says in Philippians chapter 3 that he counts everything in this world as rubbish, as trash, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. This gives us steadfastness. Maybe you remember, maybe you remember what Jesus said when, when someone came up to him and asked him about following him. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What this tells us is that if we're looking for security in this life, we'd be better off following the birds than following Jesus because they have more homes and nests than Jesus does in this world. And yet Jesus graciously calls us to follow him because every hole and every nest will be destroyed, but Jesus will never fail. In fact, this is exactly what Hebrews 11 says caused Moses to remain steadfast in faith. He considered the reproach of of Christ to be of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. See, when we remember that Christ offers us eternal rewards and ultimate security in following him, we will be steeled against temptations and trials of this world that would try to convince us that this world offers us better ways to find help or relief. Well, how about a third reminder? How do we grow and increase in love? Well, it's the reminder that Christ sacrificed himself for our salvation out of love for us that will increase our love for one another. And here it's the logic of Philippians 2 that holds strong. Do you remember Philippians 2 where we hear that Christ set aside his equality with God, emptying himself and becoming man, going even to the point of the cross for our sake. And what does Paul say? He says, we should have the same attitude, considering one another more significant than ourselves, looking out for the interests of others, not our own. As Jesus summarized in John 15, this is my commandment, 
that you love one another as I have loved you. See, when we're faced with that person, and each one of you might be getting specific people in your minds, when we're faced with that person who is driving you crazy, or stepping on your comfort, or making unreasonable demands upon you, how do we increase in love? It is remembering the love of Christ for us that enables us to increase in love for one another. See, these are the truths that hold us fast in the midst of affliction and chaos. These are the fertilizers, if you will, for abundantly growing faith and love and steadfast faith. Well, let's move on then to the second part of our passage where Paul talks about God's work that marks us as worthy of the kingdom of God. As you move to verses 5 and 7, I think you can almost hear the Thessalonians asking a question. They're saying, yes, Paul, we're standing fast. Christ is our hope. That is true. But this doesn't make sense. How can God, given his holy character and his justice, allow his people to suffer all this affliction? And this question isn't new. It's the same question Job asked as he faced suffering. It's the same question Asaph, the psalmist, asked in Psalm 73 when he saw the wicked flourishing and the righteous suffering. It's the question that countless people ask today, either as a trump card against Christianity or as a legitimate and agonizing question as they face suffering. And this is a reality every one of us needs to face because suffering and affliction will come. Just this week, in the last six days, I've seen the following headlines. July 8th, 12 Christians arrested and beaten in Iran. July 6th, Turkey expels two Christian workers after deporting 16 others this year. July 9th, Christian families in India forced to flee their homes after prayer house attacked and threats of rape and murder. This is happening to God's people around the world right now. And even here in Lancaster County, I know a Christian who has faced much difficulty who asked this question. He said, I know Christians will suffer, but would you have expected this much suffering? So the first significant challenge that the Thessalonians are facing is ongoing persecution, raising again this question, how can a just God allow this suffering in the lives of his people? And Paul's going to provide an answer. But perhaps before we look at the details of his answer, I could just say one thing. One of the reasons today that many people find suffering and evidence against God is because we start with the wrong assumptions and the wrong questions, which always lead us to poor answers. See, in the 20th century, the common cultural assumption is that suffering is the worst possible thing. It should be avoided at all costs, and with our technological advances, surely we ought to be able to keep just about all of it from us. But this strikes the heart of the church, too. Because even in the church, there is a therapeutic gospel that has led to widespread belief that God's purpose is to help me and take care of me and keep me from the things that I fear. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, the older Christian idea that we exist for God's glory has receded and been replaced by the belief that God exists to nurture and sustain us. If that's what we expect of God, then his sovereign allowance of suffering is going to tie us into mental and emotional knots, and we will have no answers. But that's not the Christian worldview. See, 
The biblical view expects that we will face affliction and suffering and pain. It expects that because it's the natural consequence of sin and the fall and the natural consequence of the reality that a spiritual battle is being waged on the playing field of our lives right now. And the only question for us is, is there hope or justice in the face of the suffering and affliction that will come? And if that's our question, then we can see the triumph of the cross, where God's own Son went through suffering Himself in order to crush suffering and guarantee the end of the story, resurrection and the wiping away of every tear for those who submit to Him, and the full just judgment on those who oppose Him and His people. That's the starting assumptions we have to come with. But with those assumptions, let's look at our text. Verses 5 through 7. Paul gives us a specific answer to this objection, defending God's justice in the face of suffering. And he begins, look at verse 5, with this surprising statement. The Thessalonian church's experience of standing fast in the face of affliction is actually evidence of God's righteous judgment, not evidence against God's righteous judgment. How is that possible? Follow Paul's logic here. God, in his sovereign grace, has allowed the Thessalonians to suffer, but has held them steadfast in it. And that is evidence of God's righteous judgment, because that very process of suffering in faith is marking the Thessalonians as worthy of the kingdom of God that they will receive on the last day. See, Paul told the Thessalonians back in in the first letter that all believers should expect affliction because there is an inevitable link that cannot be broken between suffering and glory. That inevitable link between suffering and glory comes from our union with Jesus. We will walk the same road that he walked if we are his people. Romans 8 tells us that we will be glorified with Jesus Yes, provided that we suffer with Jesus. And so enduring affliction in faith is the very thing that reveals that we are Christ's people united to him and therefore are worthy of the kingdom for which we are suffering. I think you could ask the question this way. How do we know that God is righteous to grant his people access to his kingdom? Well, we have access to his kingdom if we are united by faith to Christ. And suffering in faith is one of the key evidences that we are united to Christ. And so though it's all by God's power, Paul can say that enduring suffering in faith makes us or marks us as worthy of the kingdom of God, which we will receive on the last day, and showing that God is righteous to grant his people access to his kingdom. But Paul adds a second reason why suffering in faith demonstrates Paul's, or excuse me, God's justice and righteousness, and he does that in verses 6 to 7. Here he focuses on the last judgment day, and he says that the last day, God's righteousness will be on full display when he punishes those who have afflicted his people, for they have justly earned his wrath. In fact, you can see his justice emphasized by the wording of verse 6. You see what what Paul says. He says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That, if you have the Old Testament in your background, is a great statement of justice. 
an eye for an eye, affliction for affliction. So what Paul is saying is that the saint's endurance of affliction now will make it abundantly clear to the whole world that God's punishment is just and will glorify his character before the entire world on the last day. John Stott summarizes it so well when he says, when we see injustice flourish and God's people suffer, we ask, why doesn't God do something? And the answer is that God is doing something. He is allowing his people to suffer in order to qualify them and account them as worthy of his heavenly kingdom. And he is allowing the wicked to triumph only temporarily, but his just judgment will come in the end. And so this very situation of enduring suffering and faith is an evidence and a defense of the righteousness and justice of God. Well, as we close, I just ask you to reflect with me on what this means for you and I. These verses give us a logical defense of God's justice. Yes, that's true. But these verses also transform every moment and every day of suffering. Because in light of these truths, every affliction of every day is now an opportunity to see on display our solidarity with Christ, which makes us worthy of the kingdom of God for which we are suffering. So we step back. We step back at the end of this passage. And what do we have in this text? What what does this text hold for God's people? It holds a reminder of what God is up to. It holds a reminder of who God is and what he is doing, and it piques our excitement for the return of Christ when he will save his people and issue just judgment on those who oppose him. And we have in this text also a call, a call to thank God for his work in us as we seek to grow in faith, to increase in love, and to stand steadfast in faith while we wait for Jesus to be revealed from heaven. And so I think the only question for you and I is this. Have you put your faith and trust in such a great, just Savior? Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for this text. How I thank you for this text reminder of who we are in Christ and what is offered to us in Christ. That if we would repent of our sins and turn to you in faith, you would unite us in God our Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in personal fellowship with you through your Holy Spirit. It gives us this wonderful call to long to grow in faith and increase in love and to stand steadfast by your power. And it gives us this reminder of your righteousness and justice, encouraging us in the face of affliction as we wait for your return to bring us with you into your kingdom. Would you increase our anticipation and our joy as we look to you? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.